Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze the music, legacy, and cultural impact of all your favorite pop stars. I'm your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm a DJ, writer, and all-around pop music fanatic. I've spent my entire life and career thinking about, dissecting, and being obsessed with pop stars. Their music, their legacies, how they relate to one another, to the larger pop musical landscape, and to culture more broadly. What separates an icon from a mere superstar? Why do some careers become the soundtrack to our lives, and why do others flop? Whose work and legacy transcends time, and whose feels stuck in it? Every episode of Pop Pantheon, we'll devote an entire episode to a pop icon. From titans of the genre like Beyonce and all the way down to uh, lesser titans like Nicole Scherzinger. Each episode, you'll hear a little breakdown from me and then some distinguished guests and I will chop it up about their careers, discographies, public personas, live performances, music videos, feuds, tweets, you name it. And at the end, we'll turn pop into fantasy football, make our final judgment and place them in the official pop pantheon. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Pop Pantheon. This is DJ Louie, and as always, it is my absolute honor, pleasure, privilege to have you here listening to another episode of my little show. Just going to keep my remarks very brief up top here. If you haven't yet, I would really appreciate it if you could rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. So many people have done it. I am so close to my goal of 100 (laughs) reviews. Please help me get there. I think I'm at 92. So you could be the one. And the person that is the 100th review is going to maybe get something like a special prize from me or something. So TBD on that, but that could be fun. So please rate, review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. I'd really appreciate that. And also, if you could follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and DJ L O U I E X I V on Instagram and Twitter, that would also be sick. You know, that would be awesome. Last few notes every episode of this podcast has a Spotify playlist of essentials by the artists from that week made by yours truly. It's linked in the show notes. I don't know if I've been saying that enough. Uh, so those are really fun and they include all the songs in the episode and all other songs I think are relevant to getting a grip on that week's artists or getting into them. So in the show notes is that playlist and also in my bios on social media. Tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific is the Pop Pantheon Discord. We have so much fun there every week. Everybody comes in. We talk a shit about the episode. We talk shit about pop and other pop stars. We are mad. Oh, you know what? This week, I definitely want to spend some time talking about Red Taylor's version. I have a lot to say about that, and I'm sure you all do, too. So 8 p.m., 5 p.m. Pacific, links in the show notes and in the social media bios on Instagram and Twitter. And also, if you have any questions for me about this episode, about other episodes, about pop, about pop stars, whatever it is, send them to poppantheonpod at gmail.com, and I will answer them probably on a future mini-sode. So that's all from me. This week's episode is a really interesting discussion of a boy band that I feel both stands firmly in the lineage of like so many boy bands that came before, but also feels really fun to discuss as a singular product of the internet era and a pop star entity that really highlights how pop fandom works today. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon One Direction. I've tried playing it cool. 
Since the Beatles first landed in the 1960s, every era has had their boy bands. The Jackson 5 and The Temptations, New Edition and New Kids on the Block, Boys to Men and Take That, Backstreet and NSYNC, Jonas Brothers and Big Time Rush. In many ways, every wave presents a contemporary update on a similar formula that's worked magic on the charts and in the hearts of mostly teen girls in fits and starts over the last half a century plus. One Direction, the British megastar group formed by Simon Cowell on The X Factor in 2010, stand firmly in this lineage. Of a piece with so many that came before them and yet utterly singular to both the musical moment and internet age from which they emerge. When each of the five members of One Direction, Niall Horan, Lewis Tomlinson, Liam Payne, Zayn Malik, and Harry Styles auditioned as solo artists on The X Factor, music biz and reality show impresario Simon Cowell pretty immediately identified that these sweet, goofy, charming, perfectly talented, but largely inexperienced teen boys would work much better as a group. While they didn't win the show, the newly formed One Direction became the breakout stars of their season, quickly capitalizing on their young millennial fluency with the newly emergent social media platforms like Twitter and Tumblr to establish a massive, powerful army of superstands called Directioners. Following the show, Cowell signed them to a record deal and released their debut album, 2011's Up All Night, an immediate smash on both sides of the pond. Up All Night found 1D dabbling in an aesthetic they would further refine across their five studio albums. Jacked up, rock and roll nodding stadium power pop anthems, perfectly encapsulated on the international smash lead single, What Makes You Beautiful. With Up All Night's success, One Direction became one of the biggest pop acts on earth, not only in the sense of hit making, but also in the newly emerging internet phenomenon of stan armies, who formed identities and communities around their obsession with their pop idols, and also created an entire rich internet sub-universe of sleuthing, fantasy, and sometimes homoerotic fan fiction around the group. It also set the band on a grueling but effective five-year run, an album a year followed by a massive arena or stadium tour that spanned the globe. The second of these albums, Take Me Home, came out in 2012 and largely tracked with the rock-inflected stadium pop of their debut. The third, 2013's Midnight Memories, represented a further leap into 1D's signature penchant for bringing various rock styles into a modern pop context. Mutt Lang-style glam rock, Rick Springfield guitar pop, Bruce Springsteen hard Land Rock and Mumford and Sons esque festival folk revival on the lead single Story of My Life. The story of my life, I take her home, I drive all night to keep her warm in time. It's frozen. The story these first three albums were not only commercial juggernauts, but were also increasingly embraced by critics in a way that boy band albums aren't traditionally. 
Their success also led to the inevitable intensified focus on which of the boys could break out into successful solo artists. In 2012, Harry's style celebrity rocketed when he began a much publicized relationship with superstar Taylor Swift and eventually became the subject of much of her blockbuster fifth album, 2014's 1989. That same year, One Direction released their fourth album, Four, which was their most acclaimed yet and continued their mining of various rock and roll tropes, most notably Fleetwood Mac-esque 70s and 80s soft rock on songs like Fireproof, as well as the transcendent Birds-esque Night Changes. But alas, most boy bands are known to burn bright and fast, and 1D was no exception. During the stadium tour for four, Zayn Malik abruptly left the band, citing anxiety and a distaste for the road. This set off an atom bomb in the Directioner community, and the dominoes for One Direction fell quickly in his wake. The remaining four guys released a fifth album, Made in the AM, in 2015, but didn't tour and announced a hiatus soon after. The album was similarly received to their previous work, but there was a palpable sense that, much like the heady, youthful past, that had driven the band to such great heights to begin with, this epic was coming to a close. Following this indefinite hiatus, all members of One Direction have gone on to varying degrees of solo pop careers. Malik scored a number one single in 2016 with Pillow Talk, and both Horan and Payne have scored minor hits as well. Most notably, Harry Styles has gone on to produce two critically acclaimed and commercially successful solo albums, and his hits, celebrity presence, and androgynous personal style have made him a bona fide, arena-trotting, Grammy-winning pop star in his own right. One Direction has sold a total of 70 million records worldwide, making them one of the best-selling boy bands of all time. They have 15 UK top 10 hits and six here in the US. The band has won nearly 200 awards, including seven Brit awards, four MTV Music Video awards, six Billboard Music awards, seven American Music awards, and 2018 Choice Awards. In 2013, they earned an estimated $75 million, becoming the second highest earning celebrity under 30, according to Forbes. The band's Where We Are tour in support of Midnight Memories was the highest grossing concert tour of 2014, the highest grossing tour by a vocal group in history, and the 15th highest grossing concert tour of all time, grossing $290 million. As the world's best-selling artist of 2013, the group was named the Global Recording Artist of the Year by the International Federation of the Photographic Industry, and in 2014, Billboard named the band the Artist of the Year. Here with me on Pop Pantheon today to talk all things One Direction is Rolling Stones, Brittany Spanos. Okay, so I'm here with senior writer for Rolling Stone, Brittany Spanos. Brittany, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I've been a huge fan of your work for a really long time. <laughs> so we're here today to talk about One Direction, and I feel like they're a fascinating topic in terms of the boy band discussion because yeah. on the one hand i see how they stand in the lineage of many boy bands that have come before them in history they're just the latest iteration of a sort of ongoing wave or waves of mm -hmm. boy bands that come generation after generation and yet i feel like they're quite unique to the contemporary pop conversation as real 
obvious products of the internet oh, era. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I feel like they, I mean, we'll obviously get into it a lot more, but they are, they've sort of invented how social media fandom works now. They, they really are a band that exists solely based off of the fact that they had a rabid fan base online. Mm. So how did that function exactly? I mean, like, is that a result of the X Factor thing? Is that a result of like reality TV? Like when they were establishing their fan base and like becoming one of these sort of like integral inventors of the rabid internet stand base, how much of that is like just linked to the way pop stardom works these days? And how much of that is linked to like beginnings on a reality show, do you think? Yeah, I mean, because of the X Factor, they all auditioned solo. They all sort of like had these very individual personalities. They didn't go on there as a band in 2010. They were teenagers with very separate dreams. And through the show being popular as it was at a time that was kind of the tail end of reality singing competitions, kind of having a big grip on audiences, on sort of creating really popular artists. I mean, we were like, I guess Kelly Clarkson was about eight years before then, and she was yeah. really one of the first people who got famous solely off of a reality show. Like, we had Star Search before, but people became famous in other ways after. Like, Beyonce wasn't famous because of Star Search, Britney Spears wasn't famous because of Star Search. That was just a thing that happened in their lives. But Kelly Clarkson became hugely famous off of American Idol. So we had seen a wave of that happen. And by 2010, it kind of was falling off. And X Factor sort of revived it because it brought in groups and it brought in like other acts. You can really do like whatever on, you know, a lot of these shows where it was less about just solely singing. But they all auditioned solo and they were all very charming. They were cute, you know, like who's not going to love that? And (laughs) we're all goofy. Like they weren't good enough to be solo on there. And so Simon (laughs) Cowell put them together. You know, they were all, they were pretty green, but people loved them. And this was a time 2010, you know, you have Twitter just started, Tumblr's big, LiveJournal, like those things didn't exist a decade before. So much of voting had shifted from calling in to texting to tweeting about it. So they, a huge fandom arose because they had to vote every week for One Direction. They had to keep them in the competition. Again, they were, they were pretty good on the show, but there was a lot of older people there up against, a lot of people who had been doing this for, you know, 15 years or something, had been like singing their entire lives. And here are these like five boys who had just met who were kind of ridiculous, who were <laughs> active on social media too, couldn't dance for the life of them. They tried, they really tried it, uh, couldn't do it. And they were very active in it and they didn't even win X Factor. That's the craziest part. <laughs> well, you don't have to win these competitions necessarily to be a breakout star. I was thinking, right. the, uh, I was thinking the other day, just randomly about Jennifer Hudson and like how famous oh, yeah. she remains to this day. And I was like, didn't she finish like seventh on American Idol? But that also like that took a while to happen. And so mm. they didn't even win. And when you win, you get a recording contract. And of course, there were other people, you know, Clay Aiken famously came in second, had a lot of huge, <laughs> huge fans and was you know, even more successful than Ruben Studdard was immediately with his first album. Mm. They got a recording contract pretty much because they had a huge fandom and they became bigger Mm. than anyone else on their season. I didn't follow the X Factor thing at all. I was just curious, like you said, you know, that that they were kind of perceived as not good enough on their own. I was curious, like, is that obvious? Like if you go back and watch their performances as solo artists on the show? (laughs) I mean, they're very green. They're very young. I mean, again, like, you are going up against people. I think the winner that year was in his like late 20s, oh, you know, around the same age probably that they are all now. There is a huge difference that 
you can hear in any artist that start, who starts off as a teenager where they are like they're young, like they have, they can hold a note for right. sure. And I think like the person who was the most clearly talented at that time, like could have sta- could have probably stood on his own was Liam. And Liam had also auditioned multiple times for the show. It was very clear, you know, Simon Cowell even pointed out, like, I'm glad you tried it again. I'm glad you mm. returned because he, I think he had done like maybe like one other time or two other times where he had auditioned. Liam. How are you? Hey, Simon, you're right. Nice to see I haven't you. Haven't seen you in a long time. It's been a while. <laughs> two years, yeah. Two years, yeah. Two years. How far did you get the last time, Liam? Um, well, I was here in 2008, and I made it through to Simon's house in Barbados. At just 14 years of age, Liam came so close to making it happen. A million love songs later. But his heart was broken when Simon didn't believe he was ready and sent him home. What are you going to sing today? Um, I'm going to sing Crimea River. And now you say you're lonely. You cried the whole night through. Well, you can cry me a river. But these are all like you know, 15, 16 year old kids. And so it's it's pretty clear that they're they're not the way that they are now. I think they all have their voices have drastically improved, and you can hear that over their albums too. But Definitely. they they were they were babies, and they, yeah. they weren't totally there. So I'd like to rewind us a little bit and just touch a little bit on the previous wave of boy bands because I do mm-hmm. feel like boy bands come in waves, which is really interesting. Like there'll yeah. be a period where there's lots of boy bands, and then there's a period where it kind of feels like they go out of fashion. What do you think that's about? Like, is that just about pop music just always kind of going in cycles, or is there like particular circumstances that allow a boy band wave to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really just, it's hard to keep a continuous wave, right? Because I think that the way that labels tend to look at it is to remake what just happened. Right. So like when you have one successful boy band, like for example, NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, right? Like right. there was so many copycats at a time, especially when everything was a copycat. Like, you know, you look at the success of NSYNC, Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears, like every artist and that came after them and came around that same time was literally built in the vein of those groups because those were successful and it worked then it worked in that time because like all the music they were turning out was good and it was like all kind of the same and by the same writers and like the peak sort of max martin era of course You know, you kind of have this moment of like the Beatles. Think about the monkeys right after the Beatles. Like, you know, right. you think of like the um all these groups that were sort of these post Brit pop kind of like boys in suits and like bowl cuts and like strumming their little guitar and looking cute and like British and like whatever. <laughs> but that were, there were so many copycats because they were like, Oh, this one thing worked really well. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was thinking about it too and I was thinking like um, there's this thing called like that's this theory called like the Napoleonic cycle of pop music, which like bo- long story short, essentially talks about sort of like the pure pop push and pull at the center of pop music as a cycle. So like basically that pop music is constantly in this cycle of like pure pop being popular and then sort of reactions against pure pop sort of driving it from the center of pop music and then it comes back and then it goes back. Like you can think about sort of like 
grunge, followed by the boy bands and Britney, followed by the kind of hip-hop and B of 50 Cent and Ja Rule and Ludacris and Nelly, followed by Katy Perry and Lady Gaga. So there's kind of this in and out and in and out with pure pop music. And I feel like boy bands are often associated with that sort of pure pop moment that happens in the cycle. There's this sort of notion of the manufacturedness. And then there's sort of the reaction against the manufacturedness, like the way that Eminem became the biggest star in the world after sort of a boy band or something like that. You know what I mean? And we can we can go back even further too. It's like right before Nirvana and before grunge was like new kids on the block and like new edition. Right. So in terms of that last wave of boy bands, when we're talking about NSYNC, we're talking about Backstreet, what were the mm-hmm. aesthetics of that? Like, how did they perform and like, what kind of music did they make? So, I mean, it was interesting because there wasn't a lot of changes over the like past few decades of, po- of boy bands to that point. Like, right. everything kind of cycled out from the Jackson 5. Like, mm. the idea that you kind of present as a uniform type of group you dance just like fresh faced, cute, like you put out these catchy pop songs and you are like a just pristine pop entity. A lot of the groups leading up to that had a very similar form, but of course, once we kind of get into the late 90s, pop is much different than when Jackson 5 was out. Like, it's not going to be cutesy like ABCs. In sync, Backstreet Boys, like, they're a little bit older teens. They also kind of have a little bit more of, like, a bite to them. Mm. Even though, even if, like, some of them came from Disney, like, there's a little bit of, there was bad boys in the group. There was, mm-hmm. like, you know, this idea that, like, some of them you, like, wouldn't bring home to your mom. But, like, some <laughs> of them you also would. And, like... Which ones wouldn't you bring home to your mom? Howie Day. Howie <laughs> Day's not coming home to mom. <laughs> Howie I would bring home. Howie's the only one I would bring home. I would bring home, like, Howie. And Justin had that to a point at the beginning because yes. he was the baby and in totally. sync. and. Uh-huh. Like, you wouldn't bring AJ home. AJ, like... AJ was the bad boy. <laughs> well, Backstreet Boys probably was, like, a little bit more of the bad boys than, like, NSYNC was. You know, one thing I was thinking about, too, that I think really sets up our discussion of One Direction and kind of one thing that makes them very unique in the context of boy band history is, I think, what Max Martin was an expert at was sort of melding Europop with American R&B tradition mm-hmm. and... Most boy bands, I feel like in history, not the Beatles so much, but like a lot of more modern boy bands sort of code somewhat as R&B and sort of trade in black musical tropes. Like Backstreet Boys was, I feel like, paying homage in many ways to like boys to men and sort of these black R&B vocal groups yeah. and sort of giving it sort of like a power poppy sheen. you know as time went on they would and this is another thing that I feel like separates One Direction out is they would lean further into that R&B and hip hop sort of vibe in order to sort of like transition from kid to adult which was like a huge trope and obviously is laden with lots of cultural baggage but like looking back it was like what did NSYNC do in order to like make their third album as quote unquote more adult it's like they work with the Neptunes they work with Dark Child they start to find ways to like lean more heavily into the poppier side of the hip hop sound of that day as a way of sort of like 
like becoming credible, proving their bona fides or setting up their solo careers. That was like a huge aspect of that wave, I feel like. Now, One Direction, I feel like stands apart from that tradition of often majorly white boy bands sort of trading at their whim in black musical forms by being a group that musically is pretty divorced from American R&B tradition almost entirely. And I find that to be one of the most singular aspects of One Direction's aesthetic and pop stardom is that they're a boy band that like in many ways stands in the tradition of other boy bands and yet they break with this one major ongoing trope, which is that One Direction's music is almost completely devoid throughout their entire careers. And in, you know, we can get into the solo stuff of hip hop and R&B signifiers. So One Direction emerges on X Factor. Simon Cowell decides that they cannot be solo artists and that they're going to be put together. So they get put together on the show, right? Like they start performing together on the show. But I don't know her anymore. Nothing left. I used to cry. My conversation has run dry. That's what's going on. Nothing's fine. I'm torn. And they perform quite differently than those boy bands of yore. I think one of the big differences, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, is that boy bands used to be defined by this sort of like phalanx synchronized dancing performance style. One Direction does not do that, which again is another thing that sort of separates them out and is sort of a radical shift in the way that boy bands function and perform. So how does not being a traditionally dancing group like affect how One Direction is perceived? I mean... They tried, right? Yeah. I mean, isn't that sort of a famous thing? Yes, and that's basically they made it past the the first auditions, right? And right. then they like made it to sort of like week two, where they kind of did like these big group sort of dance numbers, basically to kind of like weed out more people and right. like see. They all failed at it. That's uh-huh. the other thing. Like you can like there's like footage of it where they just like zoom in on each member and they just are all not doing well. <laughs> Picturing Harry trying to do like NSYNC style dancers is genuinely comedy. <laughs> like that's funny. Yeah, it was not good. I, I use this for them a lot because I think this is like the perfect way to describe every member of One Direction. Like they're all very different as performers and as artists now but like they were the class clowns like they were these goofy teen boys whereas like in sync backstreet boys 98 degrees and of course like the british boy bands that preceded them like bb mac and like everyone you know, right. everyone that was kind of Ooh, coming bb mac yeah that's a throwback. <laughs> I, like, i know there's like other ones but those are like, the first name that came to mind they were all the popular boys like they were the the aspirational they were buff mm. they were all like very like hot they were just like always kind of like in like very like tight fitting clothes like they were the popular boys and one direction in terms of authenticity again they seem like gettable like they seem like boys that were just in the back of your classroom like throwing shit at the teacher or like not paying attention or like they were just kind of like goofy class clowns hello we are one direction liam is the smart one harry is the flirt zane is vain see what i did there (laughs) niall is the funny one Trouser, the trouser, the trouser. Oh! Straight in the balls. That's what I'm talking about. Not dancing and kind of being a little bit messy in terms of stage presentation made that even better because it just seemed like you can find these boys anywhere. Mm. sync aspirational. You couldn't find, I couldn't find Justin Timberlake if I tried, but like I could probably find like a 
2010 Zane anywhere. Not a 2021 Zane, but like in 2010, I probably could have find, found that anywhere. Right. So it, it kind of counterbalanced that sort of notion of manufacturedness by giving them something sort of relatable and less sort of virtuosic and thus accessible in a sense. Yeah, they were super normal. Like they really just seemed like a guy that you would meet in your high school. Mm. That was a big appeal because they were just a little messy. Right. That accessibility is so fascinating. It makes me think about Justin Bieber a little bit. Not because Justin Bieber isn't like very, very talented, but I think the way that he sort of came into people's consciousness on YouTube as sort of like a cute kid who could like cover Chris Brown on the guitar, like that notion of accessibility has become so paramount in pop stardom these days. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's so important to the social media age in terms of you want to feel that ownership and mm. people, fans were really felt that ownership over One Direction. Like what the Directioners started, for better or for worse, was this idea that you are managing the band. You right. know too much about the charts. You know too much about how it works. Like you feel very ingrained in how labels function. And that is something that's carried over. And it's because One Direction gave a lot of themselves in the beginning. And it's a pattern that's continued. Like we look at um, even more recently, like Billie Eilish and Halsey, Shawn Mendes, like they all sort of came from very internet culture. Halsey mm. was very active on Tumblr as a directioner. And once they- Oh, even Halsey was a directioner? She wrote a song about Haler. <laughs> He's a huge directioner. <laughs> this is, this is um, news to me. I didn't know this. That's hilarious. Yeah, huge, oh my huge God. directioner. But that's the thing, like because their fans felt that early ownership over them and this, oh, this ownership over their internet identities, that connection, mm. they were eventually able to pull away from it and still have fans that felt that connection and as well as broaden their audiences. Right. Okay. Let's talk about their first record. So they get established on this show and then they set about making their first album. It's called Up All Night and it... it Let's start with the single, What Makes You Beautiful, which I think maybe remains their signature song. We talked about how sort of boy bands of yore kind of made, in some ways, interchangeable music. I mean, I know we can talk about how, like, NSYNC yeah. and Backstreet had, like, little differences, but they were all working with Max Martin. They were all sort of doing this combination of sort of pure pop and Amer and kind of traditional American R&B music. And yeah. that is not the formula, necessarily, of what One Direction lands on. They actually have, like, a pretty unique sound that emerges that's like their yeah. aesthetic and feels very singularly One Direction. And I feel like it's right there on the first single in many ways. Everyone else in the room can see it. sound of what makes you beautiful that helps us understand like what a One Direction song will become? Well, first off, they kind of follow and most of their big songs really follow in the vein of every other sort of boy band lyric, right? Where it's like, I am here to like teach you that you are beautiful and that I love you more than anyone else and that <laughs> your insecurities are what makes you special. <laughs> like stuff like that. Like they, they really... Boy bands love to prey on your insecurities. As long you as you okay. love me, as long as you, I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did. Yeah. 
as long as you love <laughs> like me. Like not knowing that you're beautiful, it makes you so hot. Like it's yeah, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> it's it's like what's that meme? That's like um, oh no, don't cry, you're so sexy. <laughs> it's, that's oh every One God. Direction song. And the first two albums are very much in the same vein of like. That's because we're beginning to pop being a little bit all over the place, right? Like there's right. a million different things happening at once. There are some trends kind of existing, you know, you have like the the post Gaga, post Katy Perry-ness of pop, um, mm-hmm. of like female pop stars specifically and kind mm-hmm. of like how they're molded and presented. You know, there, there was really nothing to immediately go off of for One Direction boy bands. Right. But what makes you beautiful, there's like a little bit of guitar on there. Like guitar would really factor in for the rest of their music. You know, what was interesting to me listening to it was it is the definition of pure pop. Like the lyrics are kind of like borderline nonsense. It has the most addictive maximalist, like jacked up chorus you could ever possibly imagine with like huge drum fills. You don't know you're beautiful. But what I think is really interesting about that song and is sort of a tradition in the rest of One Direction's discography is it does not at rock history, which is something that they becomes very fundamental to One Direction. Like they're, they, they start to play this up a lot as their discography unfurls. It's almost like by abandoning the R&B signifiers that a lot of other boy bands rely on, they instead reach for this other sort of signifier of coolness or of musicianship, which is these very direct homages to moments in rock history. When I listen to What Makes You Beautiful, the song that comes into my head is Summer Lovin' from Greece. You know, I'm very interested in what your thoughts might be on like what that's doing for them. You know what I mean? Like what is, what purpose is that serving in terms of like, I don't know, upping their credibility, giving yeah. them a certain image. Uh, is that yeah. unique to them? Like, uh, how can we position yeah. them? Yeah, and I've also, I've, I've done some light boy band erasure that I need to fix right <laughs> oh, now. Oh, please which fix is it the, right now. It's one of those things where I like, I, I see them in the lineage and I'm a huge fan of them. Right. And but I think it's, it's important in the discussion to sort of separate them because of where they came from. But, you know, of course, Jonas Brothers and Big Time Rush. Oh, yeah. Right before One Good Direction. Point. But the thing with them is that as opposed to the other bands that, again, were very like other boy bands of, the, of history that are very like label focused, like both those bands tried to present as rock, rock bands. Mm-hmm. They had instruments. He said, They were also part of a bigger sort of teen organization. They were aiming younger and they were aiming for a different audience where Jonas Brothers were very tied into Disney and they were sort of the counterparts to Miley Cyrus, Lena Gomez, Demi Lovato, Big Time Rush coming from Nickelodeon. Like that was a very specific thing. But at the same time, you know, you can sort of put that connection of, you know, maybe it made sense for One Direction to sort of have more guitar driven music because... Mm. 
the most recent success stories, even though, again, like not nearly as much of a success as One Direction would become, were guitar-driven groups. Like, Very what true. makes you beautiful? And, you know, it's a, it's kind of close to a Jonas Brothers song. Totally. Like, you could make the argument that that is a song that Jonas Brothers could have really freaked it on. Like, they would have done well with it. Yeah, they're kind of cutting the difference between, like, a Jonas Brothers and an NSYNC and sense. I was like, I was yeah. thinking, it's funny almost to think of them as, like, a rock band where nobody played instruments, in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> so... If what if if what makes you beautiful sort of sets the template for a One Direction song, what's sort of the vibe of Up All Night as an album? Like, how does the music on that sound? Is it all kind of interpolations of that same formula in a sense? And like, what do they sing about on that album? It's like pretty prototypical. Like, it kind of stays in that same vein of What Makes You Beautiful, where again, like, it's like girls that they love and girls that have hurt them. Like, it's really <laughs> just like there's no in between. Up All Night, the song, like the title track, is very funny, just because mm-hmm. it's like a random like party song that references Katy Perry. Right, references Katy Perry, yet another important figure in rock history, of course. Katy Perry's on a play. She's on. Yeah, the album is very Euro dancey. I go back to like Stole My Heart, which I love a lot. It's like my favorite One Direction deep cut because it's such a like an insanely like disco tech type of like mm. oons oons house song. And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> And then there's a couple of like kind of little ballads that always do, does super well for them and has continue, like continued to do really well for them across their careers, like these kind of like folky little ballads. I'm broken, do you hear me? I'm blinded, cause you are everything I see. Another thing I was thinking about is interestingly, a couple things. One was when I was listening to this album, it's like, it is extremely asexual. I mean, it is like completely and utterly devoid of sort of like sexuality. Like they're so nerd seeming. Yes, they're singing about girls, but it is in the most puppy love-ish way. Like they want to be presented as boys. Like it's very obvious. They want to be presented as boys. They want to be a blank slate. And they also, because the fans felt so much ownership, the only video that features a female love interest in there is what makes you beautiful. There is mm. never again a love interest in any one. I mean, you can argue that the love interests are the other members of One Direction to each other. Um, but I'll leave that for archive of our own. <laughs> I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are many, many video based fanfics everyone can turn their attention to later. But yeah, like that's there's never again seen like a love interest. Oh my God, that's fascinating. It's like they they want you to, they're so like, they're so committed to this idea of like making sure that every fan of theirs could potentially still date them that they like don't want to do anything that interrupts that fantasy. And, uh, you know, this is why I'm, I'm glad that I, I remember, <laughs> I'm glad I remembered to bring up Jonas Brothers because we're literally coming off an uh, era of teen pop that lasted much longer than I think anyone wanted it to last where right. purity rings were very in vogue mm. and that started before the Jonas Brothers and the Miley Cyrus gang and things like that but you know like you had like Britney Spears and Jessica Simpson where like the idea was like they're a little bit more virginal even though they like weren't and didn't have to be but because they kind of the idea of being very Christian and very like poised in that way was yeah. very big for women and then became very important with the Jonas Brothers because that was like a big 
that was a big thing with them. Right. Like that was, you know, they were very, very Christian and they were wearing purity rings. And so was all the other teen pop stars of the time who were just a couple years older than mm. One Direction. Yeah. So I just could not stop laughing at the lyric. I want to stay up all night and jump around until we see the sun. I was like, oh, so you're staying up all night and that's what you're doing? You're jumping around? <laughs> and I, you know, it's also like they, you know, I think like at least two of them was under 18. Like, right. You know, like, it's like, you're not going to put like a big, like, you know, the first two albums, especially, like, were, like, pretty chaste. And, like, mm-hmm. yeah, that was kind of the same way with the first NSYNC album, the first Backstreet Boys album. Like, yeah, but there was more know, was of, like, like a, a little... there was more of, like, an undertone of, like, like, yeah, if you listen to a dancing. song, like, I want you back, like, it kind of sounds like it's come hither. There's a little danger in the mix. You know what I mean? We have artists like Olivia Rodrigo today who, like, I'm not saying she's out here, like, talking about fucking, but she is, she'll get on songs and she curses and she gives like really intimate sort of like details about romance on her album. She's not saying, I want to stay up all night and jump around until we see the sun. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think a lot's changed. I think people like, it's an authenticity thing. Like people Mm want to hear the cursing. They don't want like a Miley Cyrus situation where like you can't curse at all for years and then you release your like big like rap album and like the only word out of your mouth is fuck for every single sentence you say. (laughs) Is there on this first record... Do we hear their individual strengths as performers, as singers, as writers, or does it all kind of on this first record just feel like a group effort and it's hard to sort of draw them out as distinct presences? So I've always had kind of a hard time telling their voices apart. Mm -hmm. The thing is that they all sing, though. That's the thing. Like, they all are singing their personalities that was more important right because mm. like of the social media they all had their own accounts they all like were on twitter they all were on instagram that ended up becoming i think a priority i don't know if that was initially a priority but mm. because of that like it was much more appealing to sort of like have people really kind of pick out their favorite boy right so it was more so you're saying it's less about how distinct they were as musicians and more about their distinct personality and like who could sort of fall yeah. in love with them as a person on social media because there was no no clear-cut breakout at the time like i would say that like i don't think people cared about them as individuals really until much later like Mm. you know i don't think people started to pick out favorites from one direction more widely until towards the end of one direction and that mostly came from more celebrity presence um Mm. and even that didn't really matter until the solo music came out or until well technically when zane left and then when solo music came out for people But, you know, people just kind of saw them as a unit if they weren't paying attention closely enough. And I think within the fandom, people sort of had, like, their favorites in the way that you do with any sort of of group. Right. But there was no, like, there was no Justin Timberlake. Right. It was was actually kind of evenly split, it felt like to me. Like, everybody, like, it wasn't so, like, as you were just saying, it wasn't like you know, 95% of people have a crush on Justin Timberlake and then there's the one random girl that's like into Lance or whatever. I Yeah, you don't get like the one Chris Kirkpatrick right. solo on like the first <laughs> album and then you never hear him sing solo again. <laughs> so they have this massive first album. They have this huge global hit with What Makes You Beautiful. Then they get on this cycle, which like you were talking about earlier, sort of like the pressure that gets put on these bands to capitalize on their moment when the girls that are their main fan base are still young enough to be obsessed with them so they come out a year later with their second record take me home is there a sort of like a different aesthetic goal on a record like take me home or is it essentially just like up all night part two like do we hear any sort of musical evolution on that album 
Not really. I mean, the big thing with that is that you see like the success of Little Things, which is the Ed Sheeran pun song, which mm. is like a big sort of like a big moment in terms of Ed Sheeran was really popping off. He is also of a different style, really. Like he is the singer songwriter deemed more authentic than say a One Direction. And he is penning a song for One Direction. Kind of like, again, this like coalescence of different things happening in pop culture. I know you've never loved the crinkles by your eyes when you smile you've never loved your stomach or your thighs the dimples in your back at the bottom of your spine but i'll love them endlessly i won't let these little things slip the insecure girls that you still love even if they <laughs> even if their jeans fit a little too tight um, that, that's an you... awkward song, Brittany. I listened to that and I was like, oh God, that Again, could never I mean, happen I... in 2021. Ed Sheeran really, you know, well, I have my own thoughts on that, Ed Sheeran. Same. That was, same. That was, it was interesting listening to it because I was just like, this has very odd values. Like this song about like sort of like, again, as you were yeah. getting at it, it's like, okay, so like, yeah, you, you, we love you even though you like have body impressions i don't know it was, that song was so yeah. icky to me when i was listening to it. i mean i get the like yeah. earnest perspective it's bringing to it but wow is that stuck in a past time you know and i mean the big the big thing from this is that like because of the touring and because they're getting their name out there because they're becoming such a presence this is like when the shows get bigger the second album even though you know little things was like the closest to it like they, right. they weren't having number one hits like right. Even without that, though, they were a touring band. Like, mm -hmm. they were able to kind of... This was, like, the Madison Square, their first Madison Square Garden show. Like, they did, like, the documentary on, right. like, the concert film. Like It's, like, album as product, I felt, in a sense. Like, yeah. a lot of their... Like, it's funny, because they actually became pretty decent album makers, and a lot of their albums, like, work as albums in this way that, like, mm -hmm. you wouldn't necessarily expect. But I do feel like this record in particular felt to me, like, okay, album as product, like, to sell as tour merch or something like that. One thing that did stand out to me musically, though, is it does continue this tradition that we were getting at earlier of these, like, nods to rock history. So, like... Yeah. on the lead single from this album which is live while we're young which features a very obvious yeah. and direct nod to the clashes should i stay or should i go darling you got to let me know should i stay or should i go And then you get it again on the lead single for their next album, which comes out a year later, which is Mid Midnight Memories on the song Best Song Ever. You get this massive, like you think you're listening to The Who the minute it starts playing. got the sort of stadium-sized drum programming and the huge uh, mechanical electronic production that a lot of music and top music in this period was trading in. Yeah. But this sort of a nodding at rock history kind of gives them a really distinct sound. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, a little bit of just like common sense too, where it's like, 
you know, for the label and for the songwriters where it's like, okay, these boys don't dance. Right. Only one of them <laughs> plays guitar yeah. on stage. Right. So our choices are, do we make a big dance album where they stand awkwardly? Right. Or do we make a stadium rock album where they don't have to dance? They can move around. They can like jump around. They can have some fun. They'll mm -hmm. still get people singing. Mm -hmm. They're still kind of like in constant motion. Right. It almost feels like in, in retrospect in a way that like, I, I don't think I really figured out or felt that way when I was first listening to it, but like just made a lot more sense. Right. Like, like logistically <laughs> and we dance all night to the best song ever we knew every line now i can't remember how it goes but i know that i won't forget her because we dance all night to the best song ever i think it went oh 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 i think it went yeah 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 i think it goes What is the perception of One Direction outside of the core fan base at this point? I think at this point, you know, what makes you beautiful and one thing and, and you know, little things like they, it was, those songs were, were big enough. Like I think what makes you beautiful especially had broken through and had really given them a little bit of a wider reach and kind of solidified that they would be pretty successful, right? right. Like first single out the gate, like does that well. Right. But I think by this point, like they are kind of in that way, like, they are a household name because any teenager in someone's life knew them. And I think they were more of a symbol of something. I think there was points, for example, like with Lady Gaga, where she was almost like a symbol of pop music. Like there was points where people like used Lady Gaga as a euphemism for pop music. Mm. And I think One Direction sort of became this, this euphemism for teen culture in the way that like Billie Eilish is now. Like right. we kind of use that name to represent something that you can't, like I think like for older people can't fully understand, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think when you're an adult of a certain age, like mm -hmm. you don't care and you don't want to know mm -hmm. and you're like, I'm good on the boy bands, right. but like you know what One Direction is because they sort of represent and their euphemism for teen culture of like teen taste. And I think that's sort of what, where they were at, where they were able to sort of really gain a lot of attention that way right. and be cute. Right. But like no one knew their names individually. Like no one was like, yeah, I'm sure like most of my friends who listen to Harry Styles now literally had no idea what his name was in yeah. 2012. Totally. And and they weren't seen as credible. I mean, I, I feel like if I had to think about it, I remember just looking back in them just being as a lot of pop music is and a lot of pop music that's unfortunately that is geared at, at teen girls is often perceived as kind of like lacking in value essentially or just as commercial product in, in a sense they celebrated that in this early music like their music was not attempting to do anything that was like trying to move them out of that i mean maybe besides yeah. working with ed sheeran i don't know yeah and the thing is they were able to get away with it in a way that i think a lot of boy bands were not able to like in right. sync and backstreet boys represented the the polar opposite of what, you know, Limp Biscuit was or what, yeah. like, you know, like it was right. like, they were the enemy. They were a villain. Like, right. you know, those bands were, they were to the people who hated that stuff. They were bad. Like I, I watched like the, the Woodstock 99 documentary and there was an entire portion dedicated to the fact that like new metal fans hated NSYNC, hated Backstreet Boys, hated Britney Spears mm. because they were being played more on TRL and like right. they were getting popular. Right. Whereas like One Direction, they could just exist. Like no one was like looking out to hate One Direction. Like it was easier to hate like Lady Gaga or Katy Perry because they were ostentatious and they wore weird outfits and like it's easier to sort of be mad at that as opposed to One Direction who were just like five teen boys right. just appealing to their their 
ever-growing audience, but, like, no one had to care. And Lady Gaga was always in pursuit of this credibility factor. I felt like she always demanded to be taken seriously as an artist, whether the music merited it or not. And I feel like One Direction sort of proudly sort of making this commercial product sort of maybe alleviated some of that tension within, like, the greater uh, popular culture-consuming public. Yeah, and we were in a very showy era era of pop music, and again, that was largely because of someone like Lady Gaga, who was so big and so over the top. We were at a time where people were like, when I release another album, Mm -hmm. my entire look changes. Mm -hmm. Like, everything about me changes. It's only gotten more intense since there. And One Direction, we're just... Boys and jeans. <laughs> totally. And they never sort of moved away from that. So we get these, we have these first two records, and then we get to their second, or their third and fourth albums, which are called Midnight Memories and Four, where I feel like they kind of like come into their own sound and their strengths as individual artists a little more. If you could point yeah. to sort of like an artistic or aesthetic evolution on those records, what would you say it is? I mean, the really big thing with Midnight Memories, especially, I mean, like, you know, they had always, they had had some writing credits on the first two albums, but like Midnight Memories was like the beginning of them really starting to write on the albums. Mm. And in a way that I think, you know, was, I think it was easy for people to just be like, they were attaching their names, but they were really like in the studio writing these songs. Um, You know, of course, like they were doing it with like writers that they had sort of over the pa- over the past two albums that sort of like narrowed down the people that they liked the most and that were on the same page musically. Like mm-hmm. Julian Bunetta is one who like stuck with them and Sav and Katecha, like those are the people that really were were by their side and kind of working with them across mm-hmm. the entire career. Mm-hmm. But um, it was especially like Louie and Liam were the first to really jump and like try it and kind of write a lot more songs. And through that, they were... They were doing a lot more guitar-based stuff. And I'll be gone, gone tonight. The ground beneath my feet is open wide. The way that I've been holding on too tight. With nothing in between. The story of my life, I take her Midnight Memories, yeah, it's like that. You also get like a little bit of like what becomes a theme in their music of like this sort of Mumford and Sonsness, like this almost like folk nodding, folk folk indie rock nodding music. Yeah, it's you know that's like the the hey ho era of pop music. <laughs> that was what was happening like against. Uh, like more synth heavy dance pop that was really popular then Midnight Memories also I think is sort of the apex of this homage this 80s homage music I mean as I was listening to this album I was like every single song to me is like riffing on a big 80s arena song it's like Does He Know is giving Rick Springfield Jesse is a friend yeah I know he's been a good friend of mine he knows about you in every way He's memorized every part of your face Inside and out, baby, head to toe Yeah, he knows everything there is to know You secret tattooed the way you change moods The songs that you sing when you're all alone Midnight Memories is literally an homage to Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar On Me, mm-hmm. like, directly Listening back to 
these albums, it almost becomes like a fun game of like spot the reference or something like that, which like is a really fun exercise in pop music. I mean, pop music is by definition referential and by definition yeah. drawing on familiarity in order to create a sense of comfort. On Midnight Memories or on 4, do we get more a sort of like a change in their lyrical aesthetics or like what they're sort of talking about? Does that shift from the earlier records? You know, the you're starting to see a little bit more of them and you're starting to see them kind of experiment with their writing and kind of see things that bring them to the next level where they're able to have a little bit more fun with it. And mm. Story of My Life is a song where they also kind of broke free of a lot of previous subject matters too, mm. like where they, again, like are very directly addressing their families and like making it this like kind of beautiful family-oriented power ballad. Written in these walls are the stories that I can explain Leave my heart open, but it stays right here empty for days. She told me in the morning she don't feel the same about us in her bones. Seems to me that when I die, these words will be written on my stone. So on an album like Four, their fourth album, do we hear more of them as individuals? Like, are there things we can pick out on Four, like specifically, that help us understand their individual strengths and maybe also set up the solo careers? Yeah, I mean, a little, I mean, I think like Four was best at setting up Niall and Harry's solo careers, right? Mm. Like, here's an album that is like kind of almost like a 70s rock album. this is probably like again a big reason why Zayn didn't stay like his taste was not at all on there and so you're not really you're getting a lot of Zayn vocals he sounds amazing on this album you know especially in Night Changes sounds beautiful but like oh Night Changes yeah. is my favorite One Direction song I, I love that song A lot of my favorite songs by them are on this album. But you are kind of getting that, like, no control feels like, you know, it's not even a song that features Styles writing on it, but, like, that feels like such, like, an emblematic song for what his album, like, it's like a Kiwi, mm. you know? Like, you'd hear it in that later, um, you know, in Stockholm Syndrome. Like, you're getting a little bit more of that. So you're getting these moments that feel like very emblematic of where their music would go. I mean, you know, their albums, like you mentioned, like are pretty cohesive by boy band standards. Right. But like this is probably their most cohesive album mm -hmm. in terms of like an actual sort of specific sound is going is running through it. It feels like very much like this is the album. Like when I tell people to listen to One Direction, I'm like, just jump into it. Like just start it for like that's like the album that's like here is like what their best music sounds like which is like a mixture of these ballads and also like these kind of like stadium rock moments like these arena rock kind of u2-esque mm. moments yeah okay so we we've summed up the sort of four canonical one direction albums not that the fifth one is not you know incredible i actually listened to it this morning and might be my personal favorite but then we have 
a seismic explosion in the One Direction universe. And I just wanted to quickly yeah. pull a quote out from John Caramonica of the New York Times' review of Take Me Home. Years earlier, in which he said, A boy band is no thing to be in 2012, not when you know how it invariably ends. Overblown third and fourth and fifth albums, intra-band strife, the unfulfilled desire to be taken seriously, stratification of members from dreamiest to styrofoamiest. The template isn't really a skeleton upon which a new skin and muscle can be hung so much as a predetermined career arc that offers answers long before questions get asked. I kind of had my mind blown when I read that quote. This was in 2012 because it really did presage in some ways like exactly what happened here. You have this boy band that I think we've done a good job of laying out was the biggest in the world for this brief period of time. They have this really unique sound. They're able, they're playing stadium shows across the world. And inevitably, as with so many groups in the past, from NSYNC to the Spice Girls to so many boy and, and uh, to Fifth Harmony, so many boy and girl groups happens. Someone pulls the plug. Someone ends yeah. the fantasy. The, te- the fantasy has to end. And this is usually one of the things that spells death. It's hard for these bands to move on fully without the original formation in place. So what leads Zayn to leave One Direction? So I would say probably around four, they all started to establish themselves a little bit more individually as celebrities, Mm -hmm. right? Like this is a time when they're, you know, they had already been dating famous people before then, but like Harry had a very, had, one of the most high profile relationships of the group where he was dating Taylor Swift for a while. And that like brought a lot of attention to him as like a individual. Zane is, you know, the music is very clearly no longer fitting his sound, his interests. You know, he's always made it very clear that he's an R and B fan, a hip hop fan. Like his taste was very different than what they sounded like at all. Mm -hmm. He was also like dating Gigi Hadid at this time. And he had like, you know, had been with, Perry from Lil Mix, like they were, you know, they were just like, they all kind of had like tabloidy right. things happening, but they were already like, Harry was becoming more of a fashion person. So was Zayn. Like there was a couple of members who were very clearly already starting to establish themselves outside of One Direction. Mm-hmm. And they all seemed to be trying to do it a little bit. So around this time, like, you know, again, like we're on a fourth album, like they have been touring extensively, exhaustively, every continent they've been on multiple times, playing bigger and bigger venues, becoming a bigger and bigger group. It's exhausting. Zayn had always been like the mysterious one. And it was, wasn't was just because he was mysterious, because he just kind of hated touring. He was exhausted. And mm. he made that clear in his statement. And he's made that even more clear in the fact that he has never toured as a solo artist. Right. Like he was exhausted by it. And mm. who can blame him? Like, I think he's a little more shy about it. I think he doesn't really care for the performance aspect. And I think it just really, you know, he just wasn't by his family. He wasn't living the life he wanted to. And again, like just... He wasn't making music he wanted to. I was just going to say, building off what you just said, it was fascinating to me. I just had this thought when I was listening back to it that the one member of color in the group was the one to pull the plug and the one that was, as you mentioned, the most clearly interested in R&B and hip-hop. We've talked a lot about the sound of One Direction kind of being devoid of black music, and that is a really interesting aspect of them as a boy band. I think we drew this out earlier, like most boy bands from the Jackson 5 on, whether they were comprised of black members or were white men like Justin Timberlake, who so obviously were steeped in R&B culture and wished to be seen as R&B artists. These are a group of men, and Harry Styles' solo career plays this out as somebody who continues on this track of making music that nods way more towards sort of like 
I mean, rock music obviously is also a black art form, so I don't want to say. Yeah, but it's like the white, right? The whiter version. version of it. Like it's like the we've gone down so many. Right, exactly. (laughs) Like like Harry's making music that's nodding towards Laurel Canyon folk, which is associated with so many sort of like white rock stars. So it's it was just fascinating to me. Like, of course, given what we talked about earlier about how boy bands emerge and they are able to be controlled and corralled into this one thing, and then they become adults and they're individuality begins to blossom and they become at odds with each other and it was fascinating to me that like of course like Zane was probably the least invested in making the kind of music that had become One Direction's trading card at that point yeah and there's so much that we don't know just because Zane has like only spoke about it really in the beginning of him leaving Mm -hmm. and I think you know it was just so like and over it that he just more so like talk shit about the music and things like that when he first did his solo interviews it's a nice feeling to come out of a place where you are being told what to do and, you know, to be of a certain way, just because of certain expectations or certain things that people want to see. But, I mean, I'm sure there's even more. Like, I know he, and, you know, we've seen this in other groups, like we've seen this with Fifth Harmony, we've seen this with Little Mix, like, being the one non-white member of it, being a Muslim pop star, like, he dealt with a lot of shit. Like, yeah. he dealt with a lot of Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. You know, he dealt with a lot of racism. Like, there's a lot of things that happen. You know, there's a kind of an era that just had happened right before where there was, like, a lot more controversies. Like, he's a little more outspoken about stuff. Like, he had done some, like, he, like, smoked weed and he, him and Louis got in trouble. Well, he got more in trouble than Louis did. And, like, there are things happening that we just, we don't know. There's probably even worse things happening on the label side and business side. I'm sure it was not a good time for him. And I think a lot of directioners kind of forget to remember. I think they have a lot of lingering anger towards Zane leaving. Mm. But So they didn't I receive, they, they, they did not come to his defense in this sense, even the ones that stand it, him. It was so it was a mixture, right? Like I think that because it was clear that he did not like touring and that was very clear in the message that he had posted basically like he had left the tour that they were on a few dates early and then left the band before they finished the tour. You know, it's clear that he just didn't he wasn't into it. So I think people were worried about him more so and kind of just like not sure if he was doing well. And then when he came back as a solo artist and One Direction was still together while he started his solo career and he talked a lot of shit about One Direction and talked a lot of shit about the band, talked a lot of shit about the fans. And What do you, you say know, about that? Like, he said a lot of like, he didn't want to make music for teen girls anymore, mm. which is like boy band rule number one. Don't say that. Cause they're, they're the ones who are about to help you have a solo career. You know, he said, he just talked a lot of shit about like the, he was like, it's, you know, childish taste and it's like you're like dissing everyone who like literally made you famous but like Zayn was sort of the breakout there was again no clear Justin Timberlake you know Mm -hmm. there was no clear sort of like this person will have a huge career Mm -hmm. it was rolling the dice no matter who did it Mm -hmm. but you know Zayn was probably the closest guest that people had and you know it's like Zayn and Harry were like probably the top two that people were like we'll probably do pretty well after Mm. because they're also the biggest household names at that time like I think they were the people that people knew the most because of their tabloid presence it speaks Um, a little bit to what you were highlighting earlier which is that like almost their distinct musical presences on these songs are less important than sort of their extra musical presences uh whether it was on social media early on or whether it was about who they were dating or about you know harry sartorial choices whatever it is almost was more important in individuating them out than like them having a great vocal solo on a One Direction song or something like that. Yeah. So in terms of Made in the AM, which is becomes their last album, is there any difference that we can hear in their music or aesthetic without Zane in the group? Or does it feel just like an extension of the previous couple of records? 
This is definitely an extension of four specifically. Like mm-hmm. it feels like very much in the same vein of like a lot more of like 70s pastiche. Like you have like a song like What a Feeling that is like very clearly like 80s Sleepwood Mac. You have like Olivia, which feels very like Beatles E. Hey Angel, like that always. That song always reminds me of like the Verve. Reminds me of like very like nineties. Oh 90s, like, my Britpop. god, love that um, reference. Good, good one. Yeah. And then you have Perfect, which literally is the chord progressions of style. Which again, like this is you know the celebrity aspect of Harry and Zayn. Like Taylor Swift writes an entire album. What becomes her biggest album, you know, like yeah. I mean, she's released like a ton of yeah. huge albums, but like right. 1989 is like the difference between right. Taylor Swift being like Taylor Swift, mega pop star. You can't right. go anywhere without hearing her. Yes. And it's all about Harry Styles. Right. <laughs> Who at that time is just the guy in one direction. You're pointing, you're pointing one of my, to one of my favorite hobby horses, which is like songs that pay homage to style. There's so many of yeah. them and perfect is one oh, of yeah. them. very clear as the last album there's a song history you know that was the last single they released and then they didn't even announce a tour so it was mm. very clear that they kind of were like done yeah so there's a lot of these like moments that sort of made it clear um i think the first inkling was the fact that they, they usually announced a tour right for the following year they would release an album like pretty much like every november yep. and then they would announce a tour around the same time mm-hmm. often before the album was even out mm. And there was no tour announcement. People were heartbroken, of course. Like, it was, like, hard. And I think people had already taken the Zayn news, like, pretty hard. Right. But it was pretty expected. Inevitable. Like, it, it felt like inevitable. They so they wind down. We all know that this has led to solo endeavors from all of them. Obviously, Harry's been the most successful. Watermelon sugar high. Watermelon sugar high. Watermelon sugar high. Watermelon sugar high. Zane has had success. So we'll piss off the neighbors in the place that feels the tears, the place you lose your fears. Yeah, but looking back on them as a band, what do you feel like is their legacy in the history of boy bandom? Unique to them. I think they really set the bar and established a an ongoing trend in music, which is how social media can really create megastars and it doesn't matter how big they are on the charts necessarily i mean they will end up being pretty big on like the album charts but you know social media can create stars that in other eras would have been deemed kind of niche like you know the type of success that one direction had if that existed in the 2000s they would be like bb mac you know like they Kind of open I love that we've had two BB Mac references. I know. I don't know why I keep bringing up BB Mac because <laughs> yeah, they're amazing. But I also have that one song stuck in my head. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, it would have been very similar. It's like they moderately big had one big hit single, mm-hmm. and for the most part, just kind of like existed for a very specific portion of of pop music fans. Right. 
like if they went up against the big leagues, like NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, right. or like New Kids, or things like that, they couldn't compete against some of the other groups, right? Just because they weren't a traditional boy band in the sense, like right. they weren't like built ass like da- like athletes right. who were able to dance for two hours straight. Right. So they built this type of fandom and type of success that didn't necessarily need to translate to constant number one singles. Right. It doesn't matter because you have millions of people across the world who know every single one of your songs mm. and will fill stadiums for you. Like they were playing stadiums by the end. Like I saw their final tour. Yeah. Mm. Biggest crowd reaction mm. was for a song that wasn't even an official single that most people have no idea existed. But like everyone was there to hear that. And that is something that has stuck with pop music. Whereas in previous decades, they would have been deemed a one hit wonder. They right. would have been deemed like a, totally. a flash in the pan type of group. Totally. But that doesn't matter because this is how pop standum and fandom works where you can be a mega pop star that plays like pretty big rooms based off the fact that you have like giant social media armies that love you and adore you. Let's talk about the Pantheon for a second. I have my thoughts of where they should go in this Pantheon. I can share first, but do you have thoughts you want to share? Yes. Go. I, okay, so I very firmly put them in tier three. Mm -hmm. And honestly, you know, this might be a little little controversial for us. Like, I think it's easy to put them in 3A because they no longer are active. Right. But I'm going to, I'm going to put them in 3B because... They are still a big part of the pop conversation. Right. Their breakup was five years ago right. and One Direction is literally constantly trending. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's there's nothing forgotten about it. Like Harry and and Niall and and Liam. Sometimes I don't think Louis played as much. Like, but those there are three members of the band that actively play shows and play songs by One Direction in the shows. Mm-hmm. Like it's like no longer it's like hard for me to be like of of your because it still feels so active right. like it's still like a fandom that like is kind of bubbling mm-hmm. bubbling constantly mm-hmm. and like not quietly like they're bubbling loudly they're allowed the bubbles are popping yeah they're you popping know? yeah 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 and they're still powerful <laughs> they're still flexing their power with making solo careers out of these guys you know like harry is still like benefiting from the one direction stand-up from the direction or stand-up yeah if you told me Niall was going to be the second most successful member from One Direction, so like he has been weirdly successful, and I'm proud. Of, I love Niall. He was just like such a. He's always been such a cutie, but like, yeah, yeah it, like you know, it's it's wild, it, and like they're all actively releasing music, and that and that you know that's one of the fascinating things that I think makes it so clear that they're in tier three. Even though like you could maybe have made an argument that they were tier four, but I think you're right that they're in tier three because the thing is that I feel like they, as you said, it's like it's very rare for a boy band to produce numerous solo successes and they have at least three artists that you could plausibly say have risen and be have, to solo success out of the band too which they have is at interesting. least three yeah and i mean i'm sorry you know, not they, to erase strip that down i'm very i would never want to i would never i would never want to erase strip that but, no, no no that will not happen on this podcast you know i love it when the music stops but come and strip that down for me yeah 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 oh. 
Liam is very, he's very active though. Like Liam is like, you know, he's not him and Louie. Like they play a bunch of shows that sell out. Like they like do really well. They, yeah, they do moderately well. Like they're definitely like in sort of that like working class tier almost. Like where they, you know, they're, they're performing like maybe like more like blue collar. Yeah. Um, Cause they've never they really had their... like real hit hits, you know, at all. Yeah. But, but as you were saying I, the, yeah. you, their whole, this whole narrative almost negates the notion of like t- needing to have real hits in order to it. be a sustainable pop star. Yeah. So we're kind of seeing it affect Zayn a little bit, but that's also because again, like the touring part is so important mm. to being able to kind of sustain that because the fans want to feel close to them. Right. And Harry and Niall very much so are, touring at yes. like they go on huge tours oh, yeah. and they they play bigger and bigger venues each time mm-hmm. and that is a big part of that because people want to feel connected in the way that they felt 10 years ago on twitter during like live twit chats with them where they would like hop on and answer fan questions like the closest they get now is they like like show harry a harry step on my neck poster <laughs> and then he laughs at it and then i see 3,000 TikToks from different angles of him laughing at it. I wonder, (laughs) do you think there's any chance that they were, like, because I wonder, like, if what separates them from being in 3A versus 3B is, like, do you think there's any chance of them ever reuniting? I could see the four, the final four, the OT4, Mm -hmm. one day doing something. I can never see them doing another tour together. I don't see them releasing an album together. But I think there's a very real chance of them performing together one time. Mm-hmm. Like, I can see them showing up at a Harry concert right. or, like, at a Niall concert mm-hmm. and, like, doing that. I cannot see Zayn ever doing that. And I don't think I would want to see a One Direction show or hear another One Direction album without him right. because I'm OT5. Okay. Like, I'm really yeah. about, like, the five of them. That's but like I me and the Spice Girls. Like, I can't deal with... I can't, I, like, I'm, I'm res- res- resistant to the Spice Girls minus Victoria movement. Like, I would see NSYNC without Justin, to be very honest. What? Oh, my God. That's major statement. Why? I would do it. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, for nostalgia's sake, right. like, I think enough time has passed where I'd be very excited for it. Right. And, like, I would love to see them live again in my life. Mm-hmm. I also think, like, we're in, like, a J.C. Chazay internet renaissance <laughs> where people care about him. And I'd love to see him highlighted a little bit. Um, also, justice for and, blowing me up with her love, please. Um, do we? Do, yes, do we, need to we did justice? justice for that. I think so, for sure. Okay. Also, some girls dance with women. <laughs> I'll let you just. I'll <laughs> let you give the justice that you need to give to it. I'll t- I'm gonna stay out of that conversation. <laughs> that was very delicate. Thank you. So I agree with you. I think One Direction is in tier three. I think that's uh, yeah. that's where they belong super impactful for their moment. Yeah, as you said, like had a huge impact on the sound and scope of pop stardom in their era. And that's like going to be a huge part of their legacy. So last question before I let you finally get the hell out of here. What is a One Direction song? Maybe one that I know you've mentioned a lot of your favorite sort of deep cuts, but maybe what's like an underrated One Direction song that we could we could send this podcast out on? Okay, I love the song I Would. Mm-hmm. Like, it reminds me of, like, so they used to cover Teenage Dirtbag on tour, mm. which is very funny. And it kind of reminds me of that mm. a little bit. Like, it has, like, a Teenage Dirtbag vibe to it. It's, like, a very, like, bouncy little pop song. Uh-huh. And, yeah, I love that one. I love that. And, like, um, Rock Me, which is just, like, so funny. <laughs> it's, like, literally just, like, a song is just about sex. And it's so funny because <laughs> it's just, like, also kind of, like, we will rock you. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the, well, it's that's, very that's a fun one to go out on because we know One Direction loves a 80s stadium rock homage. So let's go out with yeah. Rock Me. 
Brittany Spanos, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I want you to rock me, rock me, rock me, yeah. I want you to rock me, rock me, rock me, yeah. I want you to hit the... All right, y'all, that's it. Pop Pantheon, One Direction, Tier 3 Superstars, The Judgment is Rendered. Thank you so much to the incredible Brittany Spanos for being such a remarkable guest. Please go and follow Pop Pantheon Pod on all social media channels. Follow me, DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on all social media channels. Send your questions to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Join the Discord tonight at 8 p.m., 5 p.m. Pacific. Links in bios, links in show notes. And until I see you again, have a wonderful life. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.